This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Hi, you're listening to Postocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We are a team of PhD students at King's College London, trying to navigate this crazy world, and we will be sharing the highs and the lows of postgraduate study. In this episode, Elisa Brand will be interviewing Julie Burrell about her research in forensic science looking at touch DNA. Exciting, right? Later, Elisa talks to Donald Lash about how he helps PhD students build their careers. Very exciting as well. Thanks all that and welcome everyone to this episode of Post Docalypse. We've got some fun things in store for you today. I'm Elisa and I'm joined right now with, by Julie. Hi Julie. Hi Lisa, thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure Julie. So let's get straight into things. Your PhD is in forensic science which sounds really cool. People often think it sounds very cool because they mean, see it on TV a yeah, lot. Yeah, in my mind you are in a lab and people are coming to you with crime evidence. Right, it's probably really dark and there's lots of fluorescent yeah. lighting. And I take my glasses off and I make pithy comments about dead bodies. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly like that. You have the dream. Yeah. Living the dream. Okay. Uh, no, it is very dissimilar from what CSI Miami might lead you to believe. I mean, be honest. I mean, that's why you got into forensic science though, isn't it? I wish that I could tell you yes, and I think that's probably true of people who are a little younger than me, but I think I would have to say I was more probably influenced by watching X-Files as a child, if uh, anything. X-Files. If I were going to blame the media, I would have to blame Dana Scully. So you really just wanted to do autopsies on aliens? Yeah. I mean, I'm still holding out hope that an alien will turn up at my PhD somehow. You never know. If I ever come across one, I'll send them your way. Thanks, but let's, girl. Let's talk a bit more about your actual research. So you work with something called touch DNA. Do you, can you explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah, of course. So touch DNA sort of refers to any of the biological and genetic material that you deposit on things when you handle them. So the name comes from the assumed mechanism of deposition, which is touching something. It can also transfer in other ways. I can touch one thing and then that can touch another. I can shake your hand. Potentially I can sneeze or speak and my or DNA... spit on you. Or sp sure, I could also <laughs> spit on you. I won't you. do that now. But. And my DNA can end up in fairly low levels in lots of places that's just because I've touched them or just because I've been nearby them. Well, that's, that's really interesting. And especially I can imagine that's really relevant to crime scenes. It comes up a lot in criminal casework these days, actually, because the tests that we do in forensic DNA have gotten more and more sensitive. Yeah. So that's part of the improvement. And as the tests get more sensitive, the relevance of low levels of DNA becomes more critical. It used to be you could only get DNA from blood, saliva, or semen. So it didn't matter if somebody was sort of speaking or hand handshaking or whatever. But um, now that's not the case anymore. So regularly touch DNA comes into criminal casework. So what does that, that means that people who might have nothing to do with it just because they touched the criminal's hand or spat on them. Um, I mean, it's an option. Sure. Just because they did that, it could mean that they might be implicated in the crime. So that is a possibility. It's not necessarily something that happens very regularly, but it certainly has happened. There have been several high-profile cases that have involved um, low levels of DNA that ultimately were determined not to be from someone who had actually been present at the crime scene, but in fact had transferred on there because someone else had interacted with an object or a person who then was at the crime scene. Um, there are a couple of the 
more famous or well-known examples are um, there was a case in California where a man was murdered in a home invasion burglary and then there was a homeless man in the area who was arrested for the crime and ultimately he was set free because it was determined that he had this fairly airclad alibi of having been um, admitted to the hospital on the night of the crime. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, but it turned out maybe that the hospital, I think his defense attorney (coughs) figured out that the ambulance that took him to the hospital that night also took the murder victim to the hospital. And so that's why when they swabbed the fingers of the murder victim, this man's DNA was on them. Wow, can you imagine? That was that was a big one. That was really recently. And then longer ago, there was a famous one in Europe called the the Phantom of Heidelbronn, I think. Wow, where, that sounds like a novel. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it sort of came out that way. There was yeah. this woman who was working in a swab factory. And As you do. So she was making swabs, which were then being used at crime scenes all over Europe. And so her DNA was on all of these swabs all of them. and so was turning was... up at crime scenes she'd never been so to. So they must have thought she was a mastermind. Yeah. Basically. The police could not figure out how all of these crimes all over Europe were producing the same DNA profile. I bet they were kicking themselves at the end of it. Yeah, that was a tricky one. Wow, okay. So, I mean, let's, let's get back anyway, to Anyway, that's let's the fun context. I don't actually do any of that. Tell me what you do actually do. What's your PhD on? So my PhD is actually looking at the fundamental question of what is touch DNA, what is in it. So I said that it comes into criminal casework fairly regularly, but we still don't have a really good answer to the question, what is touch DNA? We know that it's DNA. We know that you can deposit it on things. We don't exactly know what kind of cell it comes from, whether it consists partially of cell-free DNA that's not actually within a cell, is it floating around in your sweat. Most of the skin cells that you generally shed throughout the day, I think we all know that we shed thousands of skin cells every day. I mean, that's quite an accusation. I'm not, it's not a personal comment on your hygiene or anything, but we I all shed thousands smell. of skin cells every day, um, but most of them are dead. They're the ones that have migrated to the top of your skin, and in that process, they've become what's called cornified, which means they've got this really hard outer envelope, and all of their organelles and nuclei have compressed, so they've lost so their all, DNA. all the things in, that would normally be inside? Normally, the, yeah, the things inside your cell. They um, disappear, and just all that's left is the DNA. Well, no. So they, they, the cell itself basically smushes down to a very thin layer and shmushes. all shmushes yeah. the, the official, is the technical the scientific technical term. term. Yeah. And all of the organelles sort of deteriorate. Uh, mm-hmm. So by the time you get to the top, you really just have a thin, dead layer of a, a cell of with nothing in it, really. Oh, interesting. Um, so it has long been assumed that they don't have any DNA because their nucleus is gone and the organelles are gone and there's nothing in them and they're surrounded by this very hard, cornified envelope. It's kind of surprising that after all that, after all everything disappears, the DNA remains. That's pretty fascinating. Well, it, people don't think that it does. Okay. So it has long been assumed that this type of cell does not have DNA in yeah. it. And so... Because you even though think of people, DNA is being very sensitive, don't you? You don't need a lot of DNA in order to be able to test it in a forensic context. Okay. I mean, you would you would like to have maybe half a nanogram, which is you know small, which is small, very small. But you, the kits are sometimes sensitive enough to go down to significantly less than that. Sometimes as few as say 10, 20 cells worth okay. of DNA. So we used to think there was definitely no DNA in these cells and. 
that is still the sort of common understanding, even though we know that we deposit DNA on things when we touch them. So there is a remaining question, where is this DNA coming from? If it's not coming from these cells, is it coming from nucleated cells? Is it coming from cell-free DNA? Um, that was all sort of still a mystery. So that was the driving question behind my PhD, really, is what what is touch DNA? Where is it coming from? Did you figure it out? Well, I mean, I haven't finished my PhD yet, <laughs> okay, so... Okay, so watch this space, guys. I, I want to keep everyone on the edge of their okay. seats, but... Um, we're making some actually really interesting progress in sorting out the different components, the different types of cells, the different fragments and complete cells, and then resolving each of those and measuring the DNA quantity in it as well to determine what could be contributing to this. And so far it looks like there may actually be residual DNA in some of these cells. That sounds really fascinating. And to you may be the reason why people are set free from cold cases and stuff like that in the future. I mean, you never really know. That could be one of the implications of the work, certainly. But the sort of fundamental drive is to figure out what this is so that when this kind of evidence does come into a courtroom, it's put in its appropriate context so that you can actually explain to a judge and a jury who are not scientists, what is this DNA? How does it get to where it has gotten in this case? And what are the plausible explanations for that? And so all, all of the questions about how DNA could move between people and objects are sort of secondary to the fundamental question of what form this DNA takes. So my research is kind of a, a step back. It's a foundational question that I hope will then lead to a better downstream understanding. That's fascinating. And in light of our um, next guest, Donald, who's going to be talking about um, careers after your PhD, do you think you're going to stay in this area in forensics and academic research, or do you want to go <laughs> to the lab? Um, solve crimes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just obsessed with you solving crimes. So the research, I am really enjoying my research on it, is still of interest and something I might want to pursue. I'm also very interested in the policy implications, helping forensic science policy improve, and there's a lot of work to be done in that area. There's a lot of standardization that needs to be done. The variability in forensic science quality and admissibility is pretty broad in the U.S. where I'm from. So I, I think I'm hoping to sort of go into the policy or government or administration uh, realm with, with forensic science in the future, and hopefully my uh, research can be applied there, and a lot of the, a lot of the skills um, that I've learned over the course of my PhD could be transferable and applicable to that realm as well, I would well, hope. watch this space. Donald's got lots to say, I'm sure, about that. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to hearing well, it. Well, thanks for coming in, Judy. It's been really fascinating. Thanks so much for having me. Before we move on to our next topic, let's see what's happening around KCL. Let's hand it over now to Harris. What's going on right now? Thanks, Alyssa. So um, in April, May and June, uh, every Wednesday at Guy's Hospital, there will be a, a seminar series, the Welcome Masterclass series. And this year it's focusing on cell therapies and regenerative medicine. And uh, it'll be a range of topics being covered. Uh, for example, we'll have a visit from Mr. Dominic Falcao, who's the director of Deep Science Ventures. Ooh. And he'll be talking about how to use venture capital, so that's lots of money, nice. to scale the impact of your science. Very, which is obviously very important. lucrative. Yeah. And also, uh, one of the other things we'll be having is a visit from the head of research affairs from the Wellcome Trust, um, talking about how to fund your future research career. That feeds in well into our next topic. Yeah. Thanks, Harris. No problem. 
Okay, so let's welcome Donald. Hi, how are you doing? Hello, very good. Thanks Hi. for having me on. Our pleasure. It's so great to have you. So we've invited Donald here today because your job is the career consultant for PhD students yeah. here at King's. Can you tell us a bit more about what that job is? Yeah, it's one of those things you can't explain at parties very easily, so I'm going to have <laughs> a go. Um, so um, what I do is I, I, I try and help people with two things. So one is who are you and where are you going? Mm -hmm. And the second one is kind of how are you going to get there? So a lot of my favourite conversations are people who will come to me and say, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it's fairly common. Yeah. And I always get really excited because I think that is my favourite conversation. Oh, that's reassuring. <laughs> yeah. And there, believe me, a lot of you want to know an answer to that question. Um, and then I think once I've kind of helped you try and figure that out, um, it's, it's about getting there is about the process so that's often the stuff about you know how do I write a good CV or a good job application how do I talk to an employer in a way that they, they become interested in me how do I deal with their interview and selection processes um, and what sorts of things should I be looking out for so it's, that's that's the job really that's interesting and so how did you end up in that job actually well I, I hope this is reassuring to all of you I started out as a photographer Okay, um, so somewhere completely different totally, field. Totally, totally left field, yeah. Um, a photographer and filmmaker in, in the 1980s. Um, and uh, I guess, well, well, a career highlight. I had a number one video oh, yeah? um, on uh, a cable channel that's now disappeared. But, you know, that, not that YouTube. Was, no, no, it was not. long before yeah. YouTube was even, <laughs> even thought of. Um, and I, I think there is definitely a link, and I hope this is kind of reassuring to anybody who's listening. Um, what I realised I loved about photography, I still do it, I, I still really love the creative stuff. What I really like is liked was working with people and kind of figuring out solutions to problems mm. and treating it as a project and trying to realise an idea that I'd had. And that's, that's the link with careers consulting. Mm. Um, so when I'm talking to um, a PhD and an individually or in a group, it's that bit. It's like, you know, where are we? What's the problem? How can we put all the pieces together? How can we make something happen? Is it a bit like telling a story? It can be very much like telling a story. Yeah, absolutely. That That's an approach I use with some people. We might hear a bit about that later. Great. Looking forward to it. So I guess um, I invited you here today to talk about a particular topic that's very close to our heart. Yes. It's actually our namesake. It's yes. the postocalypse. Yes. So yeah. for those of you who aren't familiar with the expression postocalypse, yeah. um, it's an expression that comes from the US from the academic job market there. And it's just trying to describe in one word the situation we're in at the moment where there are many, many people doing PhDs and just not enough postdoc positions and not enough opportunities in research. Yeah. Um, that's the situation in the USA. Yeah. Um, is that the case in the UK? Um, yes. And I, you can kind Great. of hear the hesitating in my voice. <laughs> because, um, yes, it is. And I'm going to try and argue that that's a really great thing. Yeah, okay. It's, Shoot, it's, it's go for positive. It. <laughs> so, and I, I hope you'll go with me on this. So, yeah, I mean, the facts are um, UK universities are producing about twice as many PhDs as universities can employ. Mm. And the, the really scary um, statistic, which most of you have seen if you went to the big induction when you started your PhD, because um, it's always put up, is that 0.45% of people with PhDs eventually become university professors. That's painful. That's, that's it's quite really painful. A, a, yeah. And it takes a great deal of mental effort to see that as a positive thing. Yeah. But, you know, 
But then again, we don't want everyone to job. be a professor. Maybe. Not everyone yeah. wants to be a professor. Um, not everyone can be a professor. Not everyone should be a professor. Mm. You know, um, there are, and I guess the positive message in that is there are actually loads and loads of really great things you can go and do. Yeah. Um, so your concerns about you know competition, insecurity, um, the 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 difficulties of academic life, you know, the work overload, uh, the long hours, all of those kinds of things, they're all real, they all happen. Um, I think the thing to hold on to is that you're welcome in lots of other places as well. So yeah, there is a post-ocalypse going on, um, but there are very, very few unemployed people with PhDs. That's reassuring. Yeah. Um, do these people who are employed with PhDs, do they tend to stay in areas that were related to their PhDs? Yeah. Um, the the thing that all of you seem to want to do, and there's research to back this up, is that um, you want to hang on to your research skills because um, you've spent a lot of yes, effort acquiring them. Yes, we have. We have. You know, <laughs> a lot of sleepless absolutely, nights. Absolutely, and they're very valuable. So you tend mm. to want to continue using them, and you tend to want to stay with something which is somehow connected to your research, but mm. may not be your research. Um, so yes, I, you know that that's possible. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's reassuring. Yeah. And is it the sort of thing that most people end up in industry, or is it? Are there quite a lot of different areas and fields that people go into outside of the? Academia? Yeah, I mean, I think you know. I mean, hopefully, somebody listening to this will want to come along and have the "I don't know who I am and what I'm doing" yeah. chat. Well, maybe I'll schedule myself in. <laughs> yeah, so you're all really welcome. Um, I always encourage people to 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 not think about academic careers and non-academic careers just think about careers that's an interesting way of looking at it yeah you know it's just you know what is your future going to be about mm. what, what are you going to contribute mm. um, what are you going to learn what are you going to be, give to other people through I feel like that do. takes the pressure off a little bit because academic kind of spheres it, are very pressured it, it's meant to um, and you know some of you might have said to yourselves at some point I could probably do more good somewhere else mm. You know, I uh, do wonder that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you're probably right. Yeah. You might well be able to do that. So just think about it as, you know, where you're going next. Try not to think about job titles or sectors mm -hmm. too much. It's about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, who you're going to do it with, who you're doing it for, um, how all of that works and how that fits with what you're trying to achieve in life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, take that pressure off. That's good advice. And if I can return to this idea of yeah. the post-ocalypse. Yes. Um, so we are in another crisis yes. at the moment. Yes. Um, dare I say it, yes. Brexit yes. is upon oh, us. Yes. You know, it's very confusing time right now. Yes. Um, you know, academia in the UK is heavily funded by EU yes. funding. Uh, what do you think is going to happen for PhDs in, this, in the future? I, if I knew the answer to that, I'd, I'd be pretty popular. Maybe you'd be I, the prime minister. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, and I sometimes think I could do a better job, to be well. honest. So... <laughs> I think on the positive side, there's a really positive bit of news about three weeks ago, which hasn't got a whole lot of publicity, but um, the visa cap on PhD level jobs has been removed. Oh, good. So that is code for saying, actually, there are there is going to be a possibility for people from abroad to work in British universities. Amazing. And know, that's... Without restriction. So, And that includes outside of the EU as well? Yes. Wow, yes, that's amazing. Yes. And I think the vision of that doing that is that... Um, you know, um, everything is going to be outside very soon, yeah. you know, sadly. Um, but that actually coming here to work in university is going to be possible. Mm -hmm. And I guess it means that there's no firm evidence on this that, you know, going there to work in university is probably going to be as possible as it is now as well. I mean, there might be a bit more paperwork and that kind of I thing. I definitely remember at the start yeah. of my 
yeah. academic journey. Yeah. Uh, I remember always wanting to go abroad to yes. do some postdoc yeah. position or something yeah. abroad. Yeah. And it's nice to know that that will still possibly I hope, be there. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's looking really positive. I think the other thing to kind of hold on to is actually it's unbelievable that three years after the referendum, we still don't know yeah. what's going to happen. And, you know, it's going down to the last minute of the final hour, I, I suspect, and maybe even beyond that. Um, I think the thing to hold on to is that you all are very highly skilled people. Mm. I think the place you don't want to be in what's happening with Brexit is 18 years old without any qualifications. Mm. I, I suspect that life will find a way of working you know, for people with your levels of qualification. I guess we shouldn't feel sorry for ourselves in many ways. Um, I, you know, I, you should definitely be seriously concerned. Yeah, you know, okay. um, And uh, you should fig- be trying to figure out ways of dealing with what's mm. happening, however difficult it is with the lack of clarity. But I, I think it's going to work out. I mean, the, the, the labour market for people with advanced skills in the UK, despite everything that's happening, is red hot. Yeah. You're all incredibly in demand. Um, you're all very employable. I mean, within that, there, there needs to be some flexibility and imagination and adaptability. But In terms of how we transfer how, our skills. How you transfer, exactly. yeah. But, um, you know, the opportunities are, are out there and there's no sign of them disappearing. Well, that's reassuring. Yeah. So, I mean, building on that, maybe yeah. I could ask you some advice about PhD students who are considering alternatives yes. to academia. Yes. So, I mean, yes. maybe we can talk about the practical side, maybe the more mental or emotional side, dare I say it. So, Both. what do you? where yeah. do you start if you've got no idea what yeah. to do? Yeah. Um, I, you know, come and see me. <laughs> there's a plug come and, come and, you know come and have a chat come and where are you based on come and, come and sit down in the office you know. where can we find um, you so if you want to come and uh, talk to us there's, there's actually three of us so I have two colleagues as well um, you can book uh, via the King's Careers and Employability website and we work all over the campuses mm-hmm. and we work by um, Skype and by email and by phone or by LinkedIn or by Carrier Pigeon whatever oh, wow. any means you can think of of contacting us we will try to respond um, so we make it as easy as possible I spend my time divided between guys and um, Bush House so okay. we have an office at Denmark Hill we do some stuff in Waterloo um, we, we go all over really um, so c- get some help I think the thing that you probably suffer from most is a feeling that you're quite isolated and you don't know mm. where to turn to for help well, that sounds like a familiar problem for most PhD students yeah, so yeah. talking is a good place to so start so start, just start talking yeah. you know, um, and find people to talk to and if I'm not the right person I'll find you the right person you nice. know, and I'll encourage you <laughs> to go and talk to them um, I've, someone I know at Harvard who, who works with medicine researchers in medicine said this is the thing he spends all his time talking to his researchers about is you're surrounded by people who can help you know make use of it Mm. um i think the second thing is to think ahead um and in in a sort of negative way you have no idea who you're going to be in 20 years Mm. and you have absolutely no idea what the world of work is going to look like in 20 years so it's very very difficult to take decisions now for that world and for that you that you're going to be um so a lot of what I will spend time doing is kind of helping you develop your your confidence, your motivation, um, your thinking and critical skills so that when those opportunities start to present themselves that you are actually ready to deal with them, you have the skills ready to deal that with them. That sounds really reassuring. Yeah. Almost like a therapist, well, I, <laughs> a counsellor. I mean, I'm in this because I, I did consider uh, psychotherapy and I yeah. decided I didn't want to do that because what I actually want to do is help people move forward yeah. rather than reflect a lot on the past. I that's, that's very not practice. Yeah. Too unfair to any psychotherapist listening. That's but, okay, um, I'm not one. 
That was that was my judgment. Um, so um, what I'll hope to do is equip you with a load of thinking tools that will help you meet the future. Mm. Um, I think the second thing I'll try and get you to believe, which is difficult because I can say it, you have to live it to understand it properly, I think, is that actually there is a future out there for you and there's research that proves that. So there's been some research done which shows what happens to people when they leave, um, actually, after a postdoc contract, they leave academic life. They're all pretty happy. Mm. Um, the tran- they all say the transition is difficult, but there genuinely is something out there for you. That's, that's a very good point, because I guess I was going to ask you yeah. more about the, the mental-emotional side of it as well. What yes. happens if you all yeah. you've ever thought about doing is academia, yes. yeah. and you know, in a way yeah. it can feel for some people like they yeah. are they failed in their dreams. Yes. I mean, that's very extreme, but yes. it can feel that way. Oh, it's said to me a lot. Yeah. Um, I think you have to face up to the fact that you're grieving for a version of you mm. that no longer lives. You know, it is that shedding tough. Shedding a tear, right? Yeah, now. yeah. And you, you, I think you have to face that. Yeah. And I think it is going like growing a, up. I suppose it's well, it's going through grief. It's about losing some something you've loved. You know, mm. and um, I think what what you often find is actually it kind of reinvents itself, mm. and isn't isn't gone at all. It's just appearing in a different way in your life. Um, but you are letting go of a person you thought you were, and it's it's really hard. And you will go through periods of depression and anxiety and difficulty and you know the job of people like me is to help you make that as short as possible mm. but any change is difficult and we're all inclined to think that any change that we experience is for the worst and it's only when we're looking back after we've made the change we, we see it much more positively so just don't underestimate how difficult it is and how much help you need with it mm. so come and see you come and see me again. come and see anyone <laughs> who can help you um and you know we, we can kind of make that shallow that trough as shallow mm. as possible and I, I should say probably also you know if people are thinking about persisting mm. in going yes. for an academic career yeah. you would also have advice for them as well yeah and and i quite often do my my pep talk um you know which is just like actually for for academic careers or careers where it's very competitive just not giving up is a really key thing <laughs> That's you know, wise. <laughs> yeah. So you know, we you mentioned before we we met to do this about you know what about people who are considering an academic career, mm. and you know I go for it. I'm always really delighted when people come in and say, I you know I've thought about this. I know how difficult it is. I still want to do it. You know, and I, I really respect that. Um, and my my academic interest is philosophy, so um, I'm a great fan of the Stoic philosophers and one of my favourite philosophers. Marcus Aurelius, who was also emperor of Rome, so amongst all his problems, he ran Rome and the yeah, empire. Him, it like a yeah, you know, yeah, and if yeah. you could do it. But w- one of his great sayings was, you know, if a thing is possible, believe it's possible for you. Mm. You know, and that's what I say to people, and I, I think that's really important. Um, there is another dimension to it as well, which I did want to mention, which is something that often comes up: is it's your training, it affects your thinking about the transition. Is that um, you often get worried as a, a group of people about the amount of knowledge that you have and whether you know enough about the thing you're going into it, to be suitable for it. Sure. The employers don't worry about that at all. And it's, it's really important that, that you reframe your thinking into mm. that. What they're hiring you for is what somebody wonderfully described a couple of years ago to me as intellectual horsepower. <laughs> We've got lots of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing that people really love. As somebody I, I did some work with a couple of years ago who, who said, you know, all projects at work start with a group of people sitting in a room going, we have no idea what to do. Um, kind of like us before we started talking. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, but what we have in the room are the skills to find out. And, you know, that plays to your strengths totally. That's your training. It's like, 
when you're faced with something new, you know what to do and to how to figure it out and then apply it and make it work. You know, and that's why employers like you. It, it, if, if you need to learn, you're a certified fast learner. You know, that, that's another thing that your PhD brings you. Um, that's nice. We are certified fast absolutely. learners. Absolutely. You know, you've absolutely got the... I'm going to put that on my CV. You certified do. fast I, learner. I, I encourage yeah. people to do that. <laughs> um, because if you need to learn something, you'll learn it really, really quickly. Mm, you know, I, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago who's working for um, Adidas, doing data analysis, shoe sales. Gosh, you would never think that was a job at Adidas. That's cool. Yeah, okay. and, nice. and she said she's been there less than a year. They switched from Python to R during that year. Her and everybody she works with have had to relearn everything they know. Wow. <laughs> and That's the employers had yeah. total confidence that because they've all got PhDs, <laughs> not a problem. Wouldn't ask it if people who didn't have that skill. So, you know, don't worry about it. Mm. Um, if you need to learn, you will. It's, it's your intellectual abilities that matter. Thanks, Donald. That's been really fascinating talking to you. Good stuff. Thank you again for inviting me. So just before we wrap up, Donald, thanks for coming. Um, Maybe you could tell our listeners about a little project you've been doing. Yes, absolutely delighted. Yeah. So um, we run in careers and employability, um, totally the inspiration and creation of my colleague Vicky Tipton, um, a careers podcast, especially for researchers. It's called Careers in Your Ears. Careers in Your Ears. Yes. Nice ring to that. Yeah. We were Who came up with that? Please, that was actually idea. me. Oh, well done. Sitting there at the desk and I popped in. Um, <laughs> so um, that's available wherever you get your podcasts, as they say. Um, so we, we, what we've been doing is interviewing people who, who have made the transition mainly. And they're talking about their insights into that process and how it worked for them. So it's very relevant to the stuff. So the transition from academia yes. to some other field. Yes. So what are some examples? Um, so um, data science is one. Um, finance. Um, finance. Um, imaging, medical mm-hmm. imaging. Um, someone who's actually still a PhD and is also working as a management consultant alongside the PhD. Wow. Heavy duty. No sleep. <laughs> But a very, very interesting life. Um, very interesting. So it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And people's stories, I suppose. Yeah, That's people's, the nice side of it. People's stories, yeah. yeah. Great. Um, and then if you want to find me, um, so feel free to email me. My, my email is donald.lush at kcl.ac.uk. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm happy to take messages that way. And we will post all your your yeah. kind of hashtag or whatever it is. Yes. <laughs> we'll yes. add that into the um, description at the bottom. Yeah. So just, guys, keep your eyes peeled for that. Just get in touch. Yeah. So thanks, Daniel. Thanks for coming. Thank you. It's been great having you. So that concludes our podcast today. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this month. A special thanks to Julie for telling us about her really super exciting work in Touch DNA and how she's going to be, you know, solving all those crimes. We're looking forward to that. And thanks also to Donald for his sage wisdom and reassuring all of us who are a little bit freaked out right now in this post-apocalypse times that there is hope. All you have to do is go and find him and talk to him because he's going to really help you out. So we, as I mentioned, we'll leave his details um, below. So make sure you check out all these links. In our upcoming podcast we want to talk about all things phd so if you'd like us to focus on a particular topic or just want to get in touch then please tweet us at postocalypse 18 or send us an email uh, at postocalypsepod at gmail.com thanks for listening till next time guys